Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just about four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And thanks so much to Chris. Today, the preview of a play... 1916, the no case for conscription. I'll be speaking with the director, Natasha Broadstock. Part two of author and historian Brian McKinlay. Last week he was talking about the Ottoman Empire and northern Africa, and um, today he'll be talking more about the Western influence in that area of the world. Also, last week there was an interview with US peace activist Brian Terrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. That was a, a very long interview. I played part one. Today is the second and final part of that one. More evidence of Sri Lankan takeover of the Tamil North and Northeast in that country with Dr. Brian Sinwaratna. Lee Tan, activist and environmental I'm not quite sure what she's I think she's a yeah, environmentalist. And she'll be talking about her recent visit to Malaysia. I think she's also a consultant on environmental issues and apparently in, in great demand around the world. And part two of my interview with biographer of Frank Anstey, and that's Dr. Peter Love. But before all that, let's hear it for Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when the big four banks had to face the ordeal of parliamentary tea and parliamentary biscuits, the three-hour annual ordeal big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull has assured us will force radical change in the bank culture. Culture like, you've no idea how much fun we have adding to the small print in our insurance products to ensure no one can fall through the cracks and accidentally get paid. The look on their faces when we tell the next of kin they should have read the small print, it's priceless. Well, not quite priceless. We do have to hit them with a making a false claim fee. But how impertinent of some politicians, presumably long-haired commie ones, to ask whether any heads had rolled over a few of the little innovative rip-offs. Although, thankfully, they all expected if heads had rolled, they had rolled well down the line. No one suggested just maybe the head at the top of the pile might bear some, some responsibility like giving the orders. The buck stops here. Solved again, as we mentioned last week, by not so Wells Fargo in the US of the UN of the US of the world by sacking hundreds of 20-year-old $13 an hour tellers who were clearly at fault. They must have known my orders were asking them to break the law. Big Supremo John Stump on customers exploded. They got what was coming to them. Oh, and ask why banks are much quicker at increasing interest rates when they go up and much slower at decreasing them when they go down. Worse, Pax Supremo Brian hit them hard, just said there was no relationship between them. He, he really said that. No, no, I can't help either listener, but that sure put them in their place. 
Not getting what is not coming to them, customers of this acne skin cream in the US of. Remember when Martin Schrakelli last year bought a big pharma, as they say, pharmaceutical company, and immediately increased the price of an age pill from 1350 to about 900 Well, Novum Pharmacy has increased the price of a tube of acne cream from $240, not exactly a bargain basement price in the first place, to Forty to a mere thirteen thousand one hundred, and the U.S. of Food and Drug Administration rates it as possibly effective <laughs> for thirteen grand. You'd like to think your chances of it working are a bit stronger than possibly. But the bit I like that anyone who can explain this, please send your explanation to the week that was Care Three CR. Novum said, we will invest revenues generated by the higher prices in schemes that ensure more patients can access the medicine. Just wish they'd given a bit of an explanation. Perhaps it's on the side effects thingy where top of the list would surely be extreme poverty. But must say on skincare, I'm tempted by the welter of ads which flood our tellies offering eternal youth or promising our skin will look like we've discovered the elixir of. Just apply or bathe in or whatever this product and we'll look years younger. And when I see the ads and look in the mirror, I feel I need that. And each one contains a miracle ingredient that dear baby Jesus put on earth just to make us look younger. And there's so many, I've done a calculation, that if we were to apply all of them before going to bed, I reckon we'd wake up back in the womb. On teleads we all love, one of those pushing these ubiquitous programs advising us on the best this and best that, we save you time by finding it for you, in this case the best real estate agent for us, two professions admired for their truth and integrity, advertising and real estate. But I thought, why do they ask redundant questions which answer themselves, like this ad asked absolutely unnecessarily, how can you find an agent you can trust? When the answer is so obvious, so obvious I won't demean your intelligence listener by repeating it. Fossils Minister Josh Frydem Icebergs and the team are calling for more fossils and less wind to prevent energy blackouts. With extreme weather happening more and more, we can't go on relying on wind, they asserted. Ah uh, yes, what's causing the used to be extreme weather which is becoming the normal weather? Wind. We can't ignore the fact that almost every extreme weather event involves the wind. And we have to believe and trust them, because when it comes to being full of wind... Oh, but once again, I won't insult your intelligence. Intelligence. Running down the race from the locker room onto the Great Debate Oval, US of would-be big supremo Donald Trample the poor explained that trampling all over women was just locker room stuff. It's just like a room bonking. Uh, don't you mean banter? Isn't that what I said? Don't put words in my mouth. We don't need to, Donald. You do a great job yourself. Although his policies aren't all repulsive. He does plan to throw Hillary into prison, albeit for the wrong reasons. After all, she said she would campaign for Russia and Syria to be tried for war crimes, the pot calling the kettle. And there, Donald, is the crime that should land Hillary behind bars.
And while smart Donald shows why the law says he has no responsibility to pay one cent of tax from his obscenely huge income, if his boasting is to be believed, the same law is about to put a hardened criminal on trial for ripping off the community big time. A schoolboy charged with stealing a 65-cent carton of milk. He was entitled to anyway under a free lunch program, but forgot to pick it up, went back to get it, then was accused of stealing it, and the, sorry, the brilliant constabulary called. He may have been black, dunno, but probably not, because otherwise they would have just shot him. Summary execution saving court and prison costs. After all, he may have pointed the carton of milk at them, and any self-respecting copper could easily mistake a carton of milk for a gun or some sort of lethal weapon. Knowing the innate fairness of the US of liberty, freedom and democracy legal system, he'll probably get away with a slap on the wrist and be back on the streets in as little as 30 years. On justice, I'm sure no one but the most cynical would suggest heavy behind-the-scenes manoeuvring and deals with certain officials led to those nine products of the establishment, including a son of a senior diplomat and a member, well, now former member of Caring Business Class Party Minister Christopher Payne in this team, walking free, penalty-free. After all, the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers, assured us she would not intervene with the Malaysian authorities. Bet that working class drug mule facing the death penalty in Malaysia wishes she'd been a product of the establishment. The incident also exposed not just 90% of the nine bodies, but the laissez-faire, live-and-let-live freedom of Malaysian society. The local telly coverage up there pixelated the not-bare-bums. We mentioned during the election campaign, watch this space on Attorney General George Brandy's brain. Allegations of misleading Parliament that he consulted the Solicitor General over, making the Solicitor General less independent and himself more important. The Solicitor General now making it clear he wasn't consulted. But wait. Brandy's brain's explanation is priceless. His fine legal mind... At this point, let me say my great regard for George's fine legal mind is such that if I faced court and someone said, George Brandy's brain of Her Most Gracious Majesty's counsel will represent you, I'd plead guilty and throw myself at the mercy of. Anyway, his fine legal mind is practicing extreme semanticism. They had a conversation, and that was consultation. Okay, he didn't raise the matter that this is all about, but he spoke to him, and that's consultation. You don't have to say anything, and George is talking proof of that. Meanwhile, the biggest private health private hospital operators, Ramsey the Profits Through and Health Scoop Up the Profits, are leading a campaign to change the way hospital visits and ancillary care are funded, taking a swipe at private health insurance on the way. Before I go on, I want to make it clear their only concern, their only concern is the growing cost of health care. They care about the public's money so much they want to get their hands on it. And obviously private insurance is taking too much of it, meaning they're not getting enough of it. I think that's what they're talking about when you scrape away the euphemisms or obfuscations. 
In terms of prices and outcomes, health insurance, Ramsey the Prophet's through Supremo Chris Rex Patients Budgets told us, is the weakest link. If the business model is so unattractive, it requires a huge $6 billion per annum government subsidy and a taxation regime to coerce people to buy your product, it tends to suggest it's pretty weak. See, they oppose the private health funds bludging on the public purse and want the government to help them instead. Well, more. Oh, but finally, I repeat, their only concern, only concern is the growing cost of health care on the public purse. Perhaps, I put to Chris, the government could cut costs by making all health services public, eliminate the private sector altogether. Big mistake. I felt so guilty, so guilty. Poor Chris was last seen gasping for breath, being wheeled into one of his own hospitals. Don't worry, Chris, I yelled, trying to reassure him, and I'm not sure he could hear me. If it's really serious, they'll transfer you to a public hospital. Poor Chris. Good afternoon. And at 12 minutes past four, this is 3CR, and that was Mr Kevin Healy. Later on the program, we'll hear the second and final part of my interview with Dr. Peter Love, the biographer of Frank Anstey, one of the leaders of the successful anti-conscription plebiscite campaigns in 1916 and 1917. There were others equally active, and many were women, and playwright Neil Cole's latest work is 1916, The No Case for Conscription, an all-women cast, including the Brunswick Secondary College Young Women's Choir, and the director is Natasha Broadstock, whom I spoke with earlier today, and began by saying the scene of the play is 1916. The issue is conscription of young Australians to fight for Britain in World War One. As someone brought up in England, I would imagine that you knew very little about the turmoil which this proposal caused. Would that be right? Nothing. Nothing. Having been brought up in England, no, no, nothing at all, I'm afraid. <laughs> so a big learning curve. It has been, yes. It's been a very big one. I've been researching the era and finding out, yeah, a lot about these amazing women involved. It's been really interesting. And what did you find out about them? Well, Vida Goldstein was this formidable woman, absolutely formidable, and um, she was instrumental in setting up the Communist Party of Australia. Adela Pankhurst was an absolute firebrand. Um, daughter of the suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst, English, of course. She was banished by her family in 1914. She was a little bit too radical for them. She was really quite a revolutionary. And so she comes here to Australia on this wave of revolutionary fervour and clashes a bit with Vida. <laughs> but then they, they join together for the common cause. Now, this is a play about women, mm-hmm. featuring women. The only man in the scene at all is, is Neil Cole, who actually was the, wrote the script. Is this a first for you for an all-women cast? Yes, I know, and distressingly, actually. I'd love there to be more all-women casts involved in this sort of thing. But, no, we have a cast of eight women, even our stage manager is female. So we have four main actors plus eight students from Brunswick Secondary College who are doing the singing for us. And how did you get involved? What, with this particular show? Yes. Neil came to see a show I directed a couple of months ago. Well, he must have liked what he's seen because he came up to me afterwards and offered me with this one. 
which was rather exciting. He hadn't actually written it yet. So. <laughs> that makes it a bit difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> it was a bit. So he was saying, do you want to direct this? And I'm going, sure. Can I see the script? It's not written yet. <laughs> and how does a director go about putting it together? Look, it's a fascinating process. I'm a great believer in reading the script over and over and over again because it all starts with a script. It all comes from the words that have been written. And then images come to you. You start to think how it's all going to work together. Neil had already cast two of the roles. So I met these uh, amazing women playing two of the characters. And then I brought in the other two. And just seeing them work on the script, so much comes out of rehearsals. You have a talented bunch of actors working on a script and things just happen. It's sort of just, you know, letting them run with it and then giving them a bit of guidance. It's quite exciting. And as you went through the rehearsals and through the play, what more did you learn about the women? One of them, uh, my actors, a young lass called Emma Walsh, who is also doing a lot of singing, she really took it upon herself to uh, research the era. So she's been coming to every rehearsal, just sort of giving us lovely little snippets from the time and the period, like... For example, I sort of say, well, okay, how would adult women of this era greeted each other? So Emma goes away and comes back with, you know, whether it's a handshake or a kiss on the cheek and just all the little, little things that make it real. And is it what's and all with the women? Because they weren't perfect, were they? They certainly weren't perfect. No, they really do clash. The three main characters, yeah, cl- clash a lot. So we have Adela Pankhurst, we have Barda Goldstein, and we have another character, Millie Woods, who's actually a relative of Neil's. He based the character on a relative. Um, she was pro-war. She was supporting the boys going to the front. So she's actually an old friend of Vida's, but the two are divided by their views on the war. And there's also a wonderful, wonderful sort of rather edgy suspicion between Millie and Adela. They really don't like each other that much for most of the play. And um, Adela was pro-violence for the cause. So again, that's not a very attractive trait. So she contrasts with Vida, who's the complete pacifist. Talk about the, the young women from the choir from the Brunswick Secondary College and how they fitted into the performance. Yes, well, this was Neil's idea. There are wonderful songs from the era. So Neil was very keen to fit in a lot of music from the era. So the songs over the course of the play, they start off with being very patriotic and rousing. Yo, ho, ho, let's go to war. Let's, let's send our boys to the front and it'll be over by Christmas. And then over the course of the play, the songs become more poignant and quite somber as the horrors of the war come through and the war progresses. And the idea of having young women singing them, it, it, it's rather lovely. Um, you get the idea of um, youth, hope, and then later on, lost youth, lost hope. So we have these eight rather lovely young women who are very, very committed, lovely singing voices. They're also taking on little roles in the play as well. And they're being led by Emma Walsh, who is um, doing quite a few of the solos. And so we get the idea of, um, yeah, these young women, the lost hope, the lost youth, the lost innocence, all sort of backing up Adela and Fida and the power of women to affect change. I suppose I should ask you, Natasha, how it's impacted on you, this story that you didn't know much about. Oh, every time I direct and play, Janice, <laughs> I get so involved with it. I just think, wow, what these women did back then. It was, it was just incredible. And you look at the costumes we've got together, there they are in these buttoned-up blouses and these great long skirts and these hats with you know, their ever-present handbags. And they're changing the world. It's, it's just phenomenal. If they could do that in 1916, wow, what we could be doing now. 
And how much longer have you got before the first night? It's two weeks today. Yes, <laughs> two weeks today. We open on the 25th of October and run till the 6th of November. Okay, so, and people booking? Uh, yes, they are, yes. Neil is very excited with the amount of interest in the play. So, yes, uh, very exciting. So we have two weeks of performances, usually to Saturday at 8 o'clock with uh, 2 o'clock on Sunday. Well, good luck with it all. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Natasha Broadstock, who's the director of 1916, the no case for conscription, written by... Neil Cole, and it's being performed at the Mechanics Institute, which is 270 Sydney Road in Brunswick. And as Natasha said, the tickets are moving, so if you'd like to go, I'd suggest that you get in early before they're all gone. Um, it's As she said, it starts on the 25th of October. It goes to the 6th of November. It's Tuesday to Saturday with two matinees on Sunday. The phone number for bookings is 9387-3376. That's 9387-3376. Or there's a webpage www.metanoiatheatre, or one word, dot com. I'll say that again. Metanoiatheatre, one word. Dot com, and you go to general program. So that's um, 1916, the no case for conscription. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. And now part two of my long interview with US peace activist Brian Terrell, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. We're seeing a lot of the violence here in the United States. It has been going on, but it's getting to be noticed more and more since you know the deaths of uh, young black men, even children like Trayvon Martin, have been getting how the war is coming home. Just as I said before about the drones who are Killing people, you have an American, young American soldier who's sitting at a screen in Las Vegas or in Syracuse, New York, and they're watching things unfold on the ground in Afghanistan or India or someplace, and they are deciding that somebody is a threat because of their, they, they call it patterns of behavior, and that they call it a signature strike because the signature. You know, one former CIA guy who, who's spoken out since has said the signature of a training camp could be, you know, five young men doing jumping jacks together in a field, and they decide that's a training camp for terrorists. That decision is made from very, very far away by people who don't have any understanding of the cultures that they're looking at video screen. It's very like the racial profiling to which a... Uh, 
police officer, and in the United States they're largely people uh, policing our inner cities, people who are culturally very divorced from the scene, the communities that they're policing, and they're watching through the screen of their cruiser, and they're making decisions that end up uh, killing people based on the same kind of patterns of behavior, that they're, they're not actually uh, doing anything, not actually killing people who are not actually involved in anything terrible, but who look like they might at some time in the future based on how they look and who they're hanging out with. U.S. Uh, Justice Department is actively recruiting not just veterans from the U.S. Armed Forces, but combat veterans are being actively recruited for police officers' jobs, and that's often the only job they can get. And I have you know, much sympathy for you know, the veterans who are coming home, and they need all kinds of services they're not getting, and they do need jobs, but they do not need jobs that put them with a gun in the inner cities of our country. You know, something else needs to be done. And, 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 and when we're looking for police officers in our cities, we need to be looking for skills other than the skills that uh, people, young men and women, have picked up in their time in the United States military. These are not the things that we need if our police are going to be not the skills that we need if our police are going to be something other than an occupying army. One of your foci has been to keep the pressure on the government to close the concentration camp at Guantanamo Bay. Yes. Can you talk about your protests? Yeah, well, the group um, Witness Against Torture is a group that convenes, has been every year for more than 10 years, convening a uh, fast in Washington, D.C., around... It always includes January 11th, which is the anniversary of the first people to be imprisoned at Guantanamo, demanding that it be closed, demanding that the torture be outlawed and eliminated. So we gather in Washington and stay in a, in a church for, on the floor for some 10 days, and during that time we, we fast and we meditate and pray and we teach one another from what we know, and we have, often have like lawyers from the, the people in Guantanamo come and speak to us, then we have actions, protests. Every single day, almost, we go someplace and have some kind of protest. And over the years, I've been arrested at the Supreme Court, the District Court, the White House, and the uh, balcony of the Senate uh, speaking out on this. We're, we're very happy that many of the people are being uh, released from Guantanamo now, and we're hoping that uh, Obama will keep his promise uh, belated, because he said it would be closed within the first year of his presidency all those years ago. One of my concerns about this is that there are some, at least a dozen men at Guantanamo who are prisoners forever that are not going to be released, that when Guantanamo closes, if it does, these men will be moved to prisons someplace else, but they cannot be released. And it's not. And these are men for whom the United States has no evidence they admit now, as they have with everyone else they've released, they have no evidence that these men have committed any crimes, any war crimes, have ever been any threat of the, against the United States. They're simply people that was, they have a name like somebody else's name, or the wrong place at the wrong time, or they had a neighbor who had a grudge against them and pointed them out and got a bounty for giving, turning them over to American forces in Afghanistan or someplace. But we are holding them because they have been radicalized during the years of their imprisonment. 
but many of these have been in U.S. custody since 2001, and they committed no crimes. But because they've been so, you know, been deprived of their freedom and contact with their families, in many cases, in fact, we all cases have been tortured. We can't let them go because we're afraid of what we're going to do, to, what they might do once they get out. You know, horrible situation to be in. I mean, how the debt that our country owes these people is is just so tremendous and and it will be the plan that the United States has for these men is to just keep them locked up forever and ever. Still have a lot of work to do no matter what happens, even if President Obama is able to keep his promise and close Guantanamo, these men will be someplace else and and their freedom will still need to be worked for. And then we have the horrible prospect of Donald Trump becoming president, and he promises that he will keep it open and and uh, will refill it with the people that he deems to be terrorists. Does anyone trace the men who have been released and exiled to other countries to find out what happened to them when they left? Yeah, uh, some of them we've been in touch with and some not. Two people from the uh, Witness Against Torture actually found on Facebook four of the Uyghurs, the, the Chinese, actually Turkic people, but they, they live in the territory that's part under the Chinese state in the, the very western part of China, who are uh, Muslims. They were some of the people who were first identified to be released because they were arrested in Afghanistan. They were trained, undergoing military training but to, to fight the Chinese and not us. Because of political pressures, they can't be sent to China and they, they can't be taken to the United States. So various countries have taken them. And these four men were in uh, Bermuda. You know, they're technically free, but they're stateless and they have no passports. And there's no uh, Muslim community to speak of. There's certainly no Uyghur community in Bermuda. And they're, they're not going to be able to uh, you know, find spouses and live a life according to their culture. They're very limited in their term, in their way of, the way of employment and, and uh, education. In a sense, they're still prisoners, and I think that's been replicated in various places. Some of the men from Guantanamo have been returned home to their home countries. Shaka Amir was a longtime prisoner who was recently released to uh, the United Kingdom, where he was a legal resident. That was very fortunate, but many others are being released to third countries and places and cultures where they know no one and have no points of reference. You attended court again for a demonstration earlier this year. What happened at court this time? This was a very, very small thing, but I think it gives, sheds light on what's happening in the larger, larger picture. There's a uh, National Guard base in Wisconsin state of Wisconsin, where they train operators of the shadow drones, which are an unarmed drone, but they're used in conjunction with other drones and with helicopter gunships. They will identify targets, and then uh, they'll be looking for the hunting down the next victims and calling in other uh, vehicles to deliver, actually deliver the payload. Very important part of this. And there's a local group up there, the Wisconsin Coalition to Ground the Drones and End the Wars, has, have been for several years organizing protests there. And my colleague Kathy Kelly and I went to join them in February. They have been trying to 
get a message to the uh, commander of the base for years, which had never been answered, and once in a while people try to, they have a monthly vigil, and sometimes people in the vigil try to bring a message, you know, try to bring this letter into the base. And uh, as I was describing in the scene in Missouri is we were not allowed, you know, interested to be trespassing, trespassing before you even get in the gate. And this time we were charged under Wisconsin law, which is different than the federal law, which would have allowed us to go to prison. But the state law in Wisconsin, the law for the crime of uh, trespass to land is not even a crime. It's a citation offense. They can just write you a ticket. So we were walking up the, the road and we're told we couldn't go any further, and we said we have important business, and we will not disperse. We will continue on as best we can, nonviolently. We were arrested and taken to the jail and charged with trespassing to a dwelling, which does carry a nine-month prison sentence, and, in, and uh, we were charged with disorderly conduct, which is not just acting rudely, but it has to be rise to the level of, of being threatening and obscene for these charges. We were held overnight in the county jail there, which, unlike Las Vegas, was a very uh, comfortable small-town jail, and released the next day, and eventually the charges, these charges were dropped against us. But they were charges that we knew were, uh, were fraudulent, that we were not, obviously not in anybody's dwelling. You know, dwelling is a, in U.S. law is a place where people sleep. It's not even there as a permanent residence, even a trespassing a hotel would not be as serious as this. So we were charged with uh, crimes that the police who arrested us knew that we had not committed, but they did it so they did put us in jail overnight. It was a kind of extrajudicial punishment. I've been in contact with the authorities there and doing open records searches. In the midst of this, I discover that the uh, sheriff's department claims that the reason why they're doing all these things to us is because somebody in our group made an open threat to kill deputies, which, of course, is not true, but it, it gives them some justification and cover. So I was prepared to, uh, as defending myself in court, to even on the, for this very little time, I was, would be able to, to cross-examine any witnesses, and almost always they would bring the arresting officer to uh, testify against us. And three deputies, were, including my arresting officer, were all subpoenaed and were to be in court to, to testify against me, but uh, only one showed up and uh, he was asked to leave as soon as he came. And I think it's because they knew that I could ask them questions about the, uh, why they, because the papers they used to put me and Kathy in jail overnight were sworn statements. And they had sworn that they had seen me arrested in a dwelling and sworn that we'd acted in a, a way that rose to disorderly conduct. And they had a representative from the Air Force, the man who, uh, a sergeant who told us that we could come on the property, he testified. And he testified, too, that we didn't block traffic and we didn't, you know, we were not rude and we did not, uh, you know, disrupt anything, but except for our wanting to get on base. With no one from the police department there, there was no, uh, no one that I could uh, clear up these discrepancies with. And, you know, in most cases... If a arresting officer is not there to testify against a criminal defendant, the charges are dropped. I suggested that that was appropriate in this case. The judge was very, very, very unhappy. I tried to bring up these discrepancies, and he said it doesn't matter what happened on the day that I was arrested because I wasn't charged with those things. 
none of that would be relevant anyway. And he sentenced me to a $232 fine. When I said that, uh, reminded him that the law requires that after a trial, if someone is convicted of an offense, the judge is required to allow allocution, which is allow a defendant to say anything that might be mitigating or make any kind of statement of explanation. At this point, uh, Judge Curran, as he's been wont to end these protest trials, stood up and just uh, yelled at me about how it didn't matter that I now regretted what I said when he gave me a chance to make a statement. It's too late to take it back. And he just stormed out of the room. That was total non-secret, absolutely irrational. That's what we're dealing with in these courts. Because the the irony of this is that uh, at these bases, there are activities going on that some of the best international legal minds, people from educational institutions and from the United Nations and, and, and jurists around the world are saying, you know, there are crimes going on on these bases. And the courts are dealing with these very, very small, minor things and dealing with them as though they were the high crimes that they should be prosecuting, should be intervening in, but are not. But surely, Brian, the fact that you've been targeted as a hate crime or a hate group must be worrying. What I got from the from the undersheriff of the county was a letter when I was asking for explanations for these things that explained you have had a person attend your protest at Camp Douglas who's threatened to kill our deputies. And then went on about how law enforcement officers are being targeted in the United States by hate groups because they stand for law and order. Law enforcement officers are being executed by these hate groups at an alarming rate and it does not appear to be slowing down. But one of the things that we brought up with them was that, that when we have these protests, the, the sheriff's deputies would come and uh, record the license numbers, license plate numbers of every vehicle at the demonstration against their policy, but he says... On February 23rd, the day of the demonstration, the deputies ran the license plate numbers of all vehicles that appeared to be involved in the protest, even when parked legally. When deputies responded to these incidents, we needed to know who we were dealing with. That's the reason we run license numbers. As I mentioned before, you've had a party attend your protest who's openly threatened to kill us. This is a tactic that's been used before, and it's, it's being used now in North Dakota at Standing Rock. The people, mostly uh, Native Americans, invo- invited by the um, Lakota and Dakota and other of the indigenous people there who are trying to stop a tar sands pipeline. It's very, very dangerous to the water that, that these Native people need to live. And there's a huge encampment that's growing of people nonviolently resisting. But the... Uh, Sheriff up there has had a press conference. Yeah, he said that there are reports of weapons, of pipe bombs, shots fired, vandalism happening in the area, and assaults on private security officers. Not substantiating any of those with any facts. And I have friends who are there who are telling me that that none of this is happening. The camps are entirely peaceful. But it's a psychological operation. It it affects the, the general public and how they see us when we're demonstrating it affects ourselves if they uh, throw, if, if that any credibility, it would be very, very disturbing for us to think, you know, that we're dedicated to nonviolence and to think that we suffered upon us trying to kill somebody, especially when our, uh, the whole idea of our protest at these drone bases is 
that we're against targeted killing. You know, we don't think anyone should be targeted to be killed because of their religion, the country they live in, or the uniform they wear, or the job that they have. So we're certainly not going to be um, targeting police officers. So it's a very da- it's a very dangerous thing, and it's something that's uh, deep in United States history, and maybe yours too. That that it's a way that they can the police can justify their actions against people like us by raising the specter of fear and by painting us demonizing people who are really very um, gentle people who are very much the common good of of, of everyone and, and uh, people I really believe that group of people I know from in Wisconsin who've been uh, arrested at the drone base are people who would put their lives down to protect these police officers. You know, we're not there to threaten them or to be harmed to anyone. Our efforts, we make every effort we can to communicate our state of non-aggression and our, uh, our peaceful intent when we're, we're at these places. You know, we're trying to be uh, in the local press up there and among ourselves to be as, as, uh, in the courts uh, as much as we're allowed to make sure that we let them know that we're, we know this is going on and where it can lead. Perhaps the best thing we can do is to communicate to the police themselves that we, well, we respect them as human beings, we know what they're doing, and uh, we're not going to be quiet about it. I just think one of the things that, we, that I'd like to stress is that there's a lot of fear in the United States and a lot of uncertainty, fear of immigrants, you know, the worldwide crisis of refugees. Although everyone says that there's no military solution, everyone is still pursuing one. And there really is nothing that's going to change, nothing that's going to get better until we end these wars. Deputy Sheriff, who told us about these threats, is you know, saying these are happening in alarming uh, instances of, of you know, numbers of, of police being killed. And in the United States, those people who've been involved in these massive shootings of police officers have been people who've come back scarred from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. We're simply uh, not going to be safer or more secure as long as we end these wars. And as long as the bombing continues, as long as the occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq continue, uh, you know, we're not going to be solving any of our problems here at home either. Reminds you of the Pete Seeger song, When Will They Ever Learn? That's Brian Terrell, who's one of the co-coordinators of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. of Radical Radio includes radical music. 3CR's Music Matters continues with this tradition every week by promoting and supporting live, independent Australian music. In November, Music Matters will be three years young and we'd love you to join us in celebrating our third birthday and 3CR's 40th birthday at a benefit gig at the Bella Union on Thursday, 3rd of November. A stellar lineup of artists who perform for Music Matters will be announced soon, so get out your diaries and lock in November the 3rd, when we'll see you at the Bella Union with your dancing shoes on. Environmental activist and consultant Lee Tan is back from her most recent visit to Malaysia, and I spoke to her late last week. The scandal over the billions of dollars missing, where is it heading and where is it at the moment? 
For many months, Malaysians were hoping that Najib and his team of thieves can be prosecuted. But so far, what Najib, the prime minister, has done is actually abuse his own power as a prime minister to change members of his own cabinet and top bureaucracies in the country to make sure that only people who are loyal to him gets those positions of power or authority. So as a result, despite very clear evidence from the USA and from other countries, from the investigation showing that Najib was the end recipient of the bulk of the missing money from the 1MDB trust fund. He's still the prime minister of the country, although his power is slowly being eroding, eroded. And as a result of this scandal, there's now fairly significant division and fractionalization within the ruling Malay party, which is UMNO. That will have significant impact on his power and also his power base. A lot now depends on how the other people who are opposed to Najib, and I'm not saying that they're all clean and good either. They're basically struggling for power because they are worried that by the time you know Najib's gone, there's no more money left for them to actually loot. So it's not a good scenario, but at the same time, Najib has, has to go because he's done so much damage to the country. And he's a criminal, in fact, in reality. If he stays, the country will erode into much more problematic political and economic situation. Nevertheless, has he brought in laws to make sure that he does stay there? Oh, yes, absolutely. Not only he brought in the National Security Act, which gives him ultimate power, he also had recently uh, made sure that the electorates boundaries of uh, electorals has been changed to give the ruling coalition, which is Barisan National, a much more um, surety of winning in the next election. And, you know, both of those factors made it even harder for civil society, for those who are opposing to his power and authority to challenge the system. Has he mucked around with the legal system as well, the courts? The court's been eroded during the reign of uh, Dr. Mahathir Mohamad, the recalcitrant prime minister, which Australians uh, have been fairly kind of well made aware of. So in that sense, because of the erosion of the judiciary, it has been difficult for prosecution, you know, over the theft of the 1MDB money and so on and so forth. Uh, As we might have mentioned before uh, in my previous interview, that the public prosecutor was uh, kidnapped and then brutally murdered in the most horrific way in mafia kind of star operation. So at the moment, there's nobody in Malaysia who has the power to prosecute the prime minister, despite clear evidence that you know, the money has ended up in his account. Much of the money will be used to continue to try and secure power for him and those who support him. But those who are against Najib and those who wanted change in Malaysia are hoping that this money is going to finish soon. And when he runs out of money, people might start to vote wisely. I'm not sure if I can be that optimistic, but that's the argument that I've been hearing from people in Malaysia. Is he, in a sense, reaping the benefits of the corruption of his predecessor? 
Yes, he's definitely taking advantage of the weakened judiciary system and the the weak or uh, the dysfunctional law enforcement agency and the general kind of fear of hierarchical structure in Malaysia amongst public servants. There's no independent kind of, you know, what do you call overseer in that system anymore. Yeah, so it is very easy for people in power to abuse their power, their their position. The whole pub of the public servants uh, and the ju- judiciary system are kind of not really functional at the moment. Yes. One quote I read said that the nation was under quasi-military rule. Do you think that's gone a bit far? Well, the Prime Minister Najib is the Defence Minister, so he can definitely call on to his... Uh, army and uh, the whole of the defence force to kind of uh, use underhanded way to rule the country in a militaristic manner. However, I've also heard people saying that the military is not all on Najib's side. So it depends on whether or not those who are not on his side dare to challenge him given the scandal that is now kind of very well known in the country. Has he brought down any of his opposition in recent times? Oh, definitely he has. Uh, When the 1MDB scandal first hit the international news, uh, he's gotten rid of his deputy prime minister. He's gotten rid of the, well, he's killed the public prosecutor, although, you know, (laughs) so far he had not acknowledge that. And he's replaced many of uh, other key senior bureaucrats and also ministerial positions. Could it be then that what will bring him down is um, what's happening in courts in overseas countries? Possibly the ongoing scandal will, you know, slowly chip away his reputation. His reputation is already at the bottom internationally, uh, which is why he's not attending key meetings internationally, like the recent UN, I think it's the Sustainable Development Goal meeting in some in Geneva or somewhere, uh, and he sent his deputy instead. He's not travelling to certain countries like the United States, Switzerland, uh, probably the UK countries where he is likely to be caught under their law, I guess. Yes, but at the same time, you know, he's still having a bit of influence over a country like Thailand, where one of the key witnesses for this scandal is at the moment in prison on some trauma charges. And this prisoner, Justo, is a Swiss citizen, and the Swiss government's been trying to arrange for a prisoner transfer to make sure that, you know, his citizen is safe. But that has been stopped by Najib recently. Just remind us the amount of money that's missing. The Swiss government is reportedly saying in their investigation that some 6 billion US was involved. The Department of Justice in the USA is reporting something like 2 billion or something in their record. So it all depends on which accounts they've used. In reality, I think the 6 billion or 5 billion is quite realistic. And how did it get to that stage? Didn't people notice things were going wrong? That's the problem. All major transactions, especially big ones, should have gone through the National Bank or Bank Nagara. Well, there's been reports saying that people had uh, sent in 
uh, notification, but no action was taken. So basically, they were senior public servants who were meant to be overseeing these kind of problems, closing a blind eye to it, knowing that the prime minister was involved in it. That's quite common in Malaysia. You know, oftentimes, even when we were working on the Linus campaign, we would go to the Department of Environment requesting for records of uh, data, environmental monitoring data. And we would be told that, oh, you know, we need above authorization before we can release it. We've got loads of data, but we can't release it because we haven't got any authorization from the above. <laughs> Nobody really know who the above mean, but everybody in Malaysia kind of understood what that meant. And Najib's wife can't be making things easy for him. Yes, I think, you know, there have been story that they, they had problems sleeping, both him and his very spent wife. Very spendthrift. Uh, Rosma, <laughs> yes. I think she's pathologically, psychopathically spendthrift, <laughs> you know, buying huge expensive diamond rings like, you know, that's costing like 24 million US and branded handbags and shoes. In some way, she might be worse than Imelda Marcos, who's got over 3,000 pairs of shoes. Uh, you know, her collections of luxurious items would far outweigh what Imelda Marcos has got. And are people able to still protest? Yes. Recently, a group of young Muslim Malays, led by women actually, very encouraging to see Muslim women speaking out. And the story is now picking up even by mainstream media, although, you know, in somewhat tame way, but definitely the social media has been promoting that. Young Muslim students are saying the whole world knew about 1MDB. Why is it that we still pretend like there's no such scandal? And they have defied police warning to stage street demonstration non-violently uh, without much incidents, which is quite encouraging, although the number turning up hasn't been that big so far. But that's a good sign, I guess. There's also Muslim women, a lawyer, Siti Qasim was her name, is her name. Uh, she's been fairly outspoken on many issues, particularly on the oppression of women used by Muslim leaders in Malaysia against the teaching of uh, Islam. So it's been encouraging to see this kind of usually kind of taboo issue or what they call sacred cows type thing being challenged in public for a change. Can you explain a little bit more about the Muslim women and what they're campaigning for? Yeah, the Islamic Party of Malaysia, PAS, has now kind of joined rank with the National Coalition, which is Barisan National or AMNO, and that's created a split in the Islamic Party members in Malaysia with two Islamic Party surfacing. The leader of the original Islamic Party has been kind of talking up the Islamization of the country, which is really strange because, you know, on the one hand, you've got this huge scandal inflicted by the Prime Minister and his and whatever his team of thieves. On the other hand, there's this Islamic leader talking up about Sharia law and Islamization. In some way, you know, it's not hard to see from the Malaysian perspective because the majority of the Muslim in the rural area are still very religious. It is in a way a red herring. And recently, I think there's been some public forum to 
talk about, again, Sharia law to be used. A lot of headlines reporting about a woman lawyer, Siti Kasim, who belongs to Sisters of Islam, which is a um, kind of a feminist Islamic movement in Malaysia, an NGO. They're very brave and they're very strong. They're very highly educated, so they understand the Quran very well. They have been very outspoken against the kind of fundamentalist Islamization and the distortion of Islam particularly that oppresses women, that undermine human rights as well. And have they paid penalties for being outspoken? Yes, yes. they've been threatened a lot, the women in that particular group. There's a militant group from uh, the Amno party. It's called Pakasa. People say that it was uh, basically brought up by Dr. Mahathir during his reign. They wear red shirts and they're very aggressive and they go around bullying anybody who dare to challenge the system. And the Sisters of of Islam especially have been targeted by them many times with physical threats of violence and so on and so forth. Well, into all this quagmire in Malaysia, Linus has been granted another three years to operate with no permanent radioactive waste disposal facility and inadequate pollution management facilities. How do they get away with it? Well, I mean, if the system is not functional and there's, you know, huge scandal plaguing the country, nobody's going to care about Linus that much. And uh, as long as they, they're paying, I don't know, I mean, whether or not Linus is paying bright, we don't know. But given Malaysia's track record, it's not difficult to see that if the system is corrupt, you can literally get away with murder. <laughs> and they have been. I mean, not Linus, but, you know, people in Malaysia, or people in authority in Malaysia have definitely been getting away with murder. An operating license to Linus is it's really a tame Although, you know, from a scientific, from an occupational health and safety and environmental safeguard point of view, that's outrageous. It's going against established safety guidelines and standards. And people have been campaigning vigorously for years to get this done properly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We've never seen such fears. I mean, fears not in the sense of violent, but such a persistent and concerted campaign in Malaysia. I mean, they've been campaigning for at least three years through a very mass-based protest effort. In any country, that would have changed the government's policy or even decision. But in the case of Malaysia, it made no difference at all, actually. What should be done? Because of the application of what Linus is uh, producing, which are rare earth minerals, they have basically pitched at the low-emission, high-technology sector, vital for climate change adaptation and mitigation measures. I am at the moment doing a research through RMIT to look at the governance, the international governance. I mean, you know, there's so much talk about the Paris Agreement and its commitment to mitigating climate change, trying to reduce carbon dioxide to make sure that global warming is contained within 1.5 degrees, so on and so forth and also promotion of the use of uh, low-emission technology. I think in that area, we need to look at a much more tight life cycle impact or footprint to make sure that you know while we are promoting low-emission technology to deal with climate change on the one hand, which most rich industrialised countries would subscribe to, they're not shifting the burden and also the emission targets 
away from them to poorer developing countries, including Malaysia and China and all the other countries that are, are more likely to accept dirty, polluting, high-emission production mechanism. It has to be a, a much more complete life cycle analysis on the whole proposal, not just looking at those who can afford it. Yeah, well, that's the point, isn't it? It's yes. a Western Australian company who's, mm-hmm. if they're operating here, they would have to do that. Absolutely. Um, they will have to deal with carbon taxes. They will have to report their emission from their operations. But in Malaysia, there's no such requirement. They will have to contain their pollution. They will have to have safe method to dispose of their, of their radioactive waste. But none of that is required. Is there another bout of regional smog over Malaysia at the moment from the fires? Yes, there's been some days of very heavy haze and smog in Malaysia and in, coming from Indonesia predominantly through the burning of forests. But they've been largely safe this year by very heavy rain. Uh, I think we've been experiencing a lot of wet winter rain. It's the same in Southeast Asia. It's been very massive super cyclones. Island country like Taiwan's had had three, you know, cyclonic experiences since July, and that's really major. Those cyclones brought a lot of rain in the region, and that helped to reduce the the problems from. Uh, haze or smog and and burning ashes and so so forth. But they're still setting the forests on fire. Yeah, whenever the condition is uh, conducive, which is when it's dry, there's still a lot of plantation companies that are burning forest to put in oil palm plantation. And that's environmental activist and environmental consultant Lee Tan speaking about her recent visit to Malaysia. And you are listening to 3CR, 855 AM, digital, 3CR digital, and you can look on website abc.net.au to find out how to stream and also how to podcast this and many other programs on 3CR. It's just turned five o'clock. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Next, the final part of my interview with author and historian Brian McKinlay talking about the Middle East, Northern Africa and intervention by the Western powers. The French began to be involved in Lebanon and Syria where French rule and French contacts are, especially with the Lebanese, still very important. The French, like the British, found people among the ruling elites in these countries who were willing to break with uh, the Ottomans and were well paid for their loyalty to Britain and France, often placed in positions of power. A very old tactic, really. But all of the countries around the Mediterranean began to break away from the Ottoman Empire. In the 1830s, for instance, the French involved themselves in Algeria, then in Tunisia, then in Morocco. And at the beginning of the 20th century, about 1890, the Italians began to involve themselves in Libya. 
In every one of these cases, the countries eventually became colonies of that Western power, Britain or France or Italy. But the British and the French were the two major ones. All of this came to a shattering climax for the Ottoman Empire in 1914. It wasn't actually certain that the Turks would involve themselves in the First World War, and some very bad policy decisions by Britain, combined with very effective German involvement in the Turkish economy, like everybody else, the Germans were owed lots of money by the Turks, but they went ahead with building a railway system, which the Germans were experts and still are, in Turkey, so that Turkey eventually had a, a railway link with Europe and to other countries in the Middle East. So by 1914, the Turks were allied, in a sense, with Germany, and later in that year, it entered the war on the side of the Germans. This immediately threatened the, the British link with India and Australia through the Suez Canal. And as you know, Australian troops, firstly went to Egypt to guard the canal and eventually fought in Palestine. But, of course, critically, Australia combined with Britain and France in an invasion of Turkey, which we know as Gallipoli. For Australia, it was the first major conflict, not the last, but the first major conflict in the Middle East. When the First World War ended in 1914, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. It had suffered major military defeats in Palestine, in Iraq, in Syria. Arab and allied armies and the Arabs in the Middle East thought that they were going to be freed from the Ottomans because the Turks are not Arabs. They spoke Arabic and they were Muslim. They also spoke Turkish, of course, but both languages were common. The collapse of the Ottoman in, uh, Empire in 1918 for a moment made the Arabs think they were going to gain their independence everywhere. What the Arab nations didn't realise in 1918, having fought for the West, for the British and the French against the Germans and the Turks, was that they were going to be cruelly deceived by the Western powers, which secretly, in an agreement known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, had agreed that the countries of the Middle East would in fact be now placed under Western colonialism. This cruel deception by the West underlies many of the problems of the Middle East today. For instance, in 1919, in the first months of the peace, Egyptians believed that Egypt was actually going to take part in the Treaty of Versailles in Paris, and they weren't going to do that. The British had made up their mind that Egypt would be represented by British puppets, really, and a government set up in Egypt that would reflect what Britain wanted. The same happened with the French in Tunisia, Algeria, and in Syria, notably, and in Lebanon. And the British, of course, took Iraq, which was called then Mesopotamia, and in fact, the two great Western powers extended their rule from Morocco on one side of the world all the way to the Persian Gulf, notably the Persian Gulf, because it already had the first major deposits of oil in what we now know as Saudi Arabia. The, the cruel colonialisation which the West now forced on the Arab world 
forced Arab leaders everywhere to look at the future. The only place that the British and the French didn't control after 1918 was Turkey itself, where a, a very remarkable local leader, Kemal Ataturk, seized power in Turkey and set up a modern Turkish state. Ataturk wasn't much of a Muslim in a sense, so he set up a secular society which was widely reflected among Arab politicians around the Middle East. So the revolts against the West, which followed in the 20s and 30s, were not inspired, as so many are today, by Islam, but by a desire to have a Western, in some cases, a socialist society. Many Arab nations looked at the Soviet Union, then in its infancy, as a model for what the future should be. And it led, in the case of several nations, to the formation of parties. The word Renaissance, or Ba'ath, you hear the word Ba'ath party used in terms of Syria and Iraq in modern times. And that word is Renaissance in Arab, Arabic and was symptomatic of what the Arab leaders now wanted to do. They wanted a modern, westernised society, in some cases a socialist society. Uh, and all across the Arab world, in the 1920s and 30s, there were revolts against the colonial powers, nearly always, almost universally, crushed by the Western colonialists. For instance, in Morocco uh, in the 1920s, there was an uprising. In Libya in the 1920s, a similar uprising, led by a man called Omar Mukhtar, who was one of the first of the modern Arab rulers, but again unsuccessful, and he in fact was executed by the Italians, who imposed, with Mussolini's help, a cruel imperialist rule on Libya, which saw up to a quarter of the population killed in the 20s and 30s. There were several revolts against the British in Egypt, a massive revolt against the French in the 1920s. Indeed, the French army had to shell Damascus to put down the uprising in the 20s. There were people in the West who supported the Arab nation's demand for independence, but none of them could succeed. The Soviet Union, in its early phase, took a sympathetic view and led many Arab leaders to hope that communist parties and parties aligned to the Soviet Union would bring about an independent state for them. So during the 20s and the 30s, this uh, long Arab desire for independence continued, but was unsuccessful in almost, well, in every case, except Turkey, which had gained its independence under Ataturk. But Turkey took very little interest or activity now in the rest of the Middle Eastern world. And so from Morocco to the Gulf, especially the Gulf with its oil, Western powers dominated. And this was the case with the coming of the Second World War. The countries of North Africa, notably Egypt and Libya and also Algeria and Tunisia, were scenes after 1940 of great military battles in which, in the case of Libya, for instance, Australia took a key role, and Tobruk, the great siege of Tobruk, involved Australian troops. 
But by 1945, uh, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany had been defeated. After the conflicts that had raged in the Middle East, the Western powers resumed their dominance. But it was not to be allowed now by the Arab people. And all over the Arab world after 1945, there were major conflicts between Western colonial powers and the political movements that rose out of the Arab people's desire for independence. This led to a great war that went on for a decade or more in Algeria and almost brought about the collapse of the French state. A conflict in Egypt where Nasser, the great Arab leader, nationalised the Suez Canal and in countries like Iraq and in Libya leaders came to power who nationalised the precious oil industry and so the conflict between the West and the Arab nations was turning in favour of the local people and of course at this point the United States became involved and today we have seen in our lifetime the United States involved in wars in, and still presently, involved in wars in Syria and Iraq or involved through surrogates whom they armed and organised. And today we see countries like Libya reduced to a failed state by a direct Western intervention to overthrow the Gaddafi regime. And so if we look at this tragic period of human history, we see at least from the ending of the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles, which by the way gave a kind of legal framework to the Western imperialist rule, we see almost a century, because it's 98 years now from the end of the First World War, of Western dominance ending in wars and tragedy across the whole of the Arab world. At the core of this is a Western desire for access to the great oil resources of the region. And that's Brian McKinlay, historian and author. And from one Brian to another Brian. On the program several weeks ago, human rights activist Dr Brian Sinwaratna revealed the extent of the singular land grab of land owned by Tamil civilians in the north and the northeast of Sri Lanka without compensation. Of the almost 70,000 acres occupied by the armed forces during the Rajapaksa regime, only 3.6% have been returned, the vast majority in the hands of the Sri Lankan military. Brian also outlined the business activities of the Sri Lankan armed forces in the north and the northeast, including golf courses, hotels, holiday resorts and restaurants. And the Buddhization, a new word to describe the making of non-Buddhist areas into Buddhist areas with shrines and statues. There are no Buddhists in the area except the armed forces. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop there, as Brian explains. You see, one of the Major problems which the world does not realize, mainly because there is no media coverage of this, is that prevailing widespread problem in the Tamil North and East is fear. It's fear of the army for very good reasons, fear of the police, 
the army incidentally is 99% Sinhalese. This is in a Tamil area. The police are 95% Sinhalese. And fear of the Sinhalese who have been relocated or employed in the Tamil North and East by people doing developments there. They don't hire the local people, Tamil people. They bring Sinhalese workers, and some of them settle there. Uh, these are people who get the backing of the armed forces. They can go and rape, plunder, or do what they want, and no action is taken. The major problem in the Tamil areas is, as I just said, fear. They are not interested in who runs the country, whether it is Rajapaksa or Sirisena or whoever. It is a fact that it's a police state under the army. Second is the sheer number of the armed forces. There are 200,000 members of the armed forces in the north and the east alone. With a population of only a million people, it's about five members of the public for every member of the armed forces. I mean, this is just nonsense. It's intimidation by the armed forces. That's the third problem where the armed forces have got to be informed of every gathering of Tamils, whether it be for a funeral or a wedding or a birthday party or anything. They have to be informed and they are normally physically present. I mean, this is just sheer frank intimidation. Arbitrary arrests, disappearances, and detention without charge or trial is still continuing. And they praise Sri Lanka and say, we congratulate you on what you have achieved out of the end of the armed forces. They have achieved nothing. The change from tyrannical Rajapaksa to the current regime of Sirisena has only been a name change where the Tamils in the north and the east are concerned. The legal system has collapsed. Tamils don't bother to take their cases, say in a case of rape or even murder, to the law courts because they know that it's going to be thrown out and worse still. They are tracked down by the army, and uh, they can for sure expect a visit from the armed forces to ask, what did you say, who are the two appeared, and all the rest will uh, follow. The business activities, which I think I spoke about uh, last time, is almost multiplied, as I just referred to it, uh, detention without charge or trial. Very few people have been freed. Hundreds of Tamils are behind bars, and some of them have been behind bars for 20 years, and their cases are not being taken up. As you know, I wrote a book on sexual violence of Tamil women and girls by the armed forces. That's continuing. No action has been taken against it. You see, action can't be taken because the armed forces are the culprits, and they are right there, and these people have to live among the armed forces. They don't have a house. And there are no males because all the males have been killed. And there are 90,000 war widows and female-headed uh, households in the north. And all that the army has got to do is to just kick the door open uh, and uh, the rest needs to be left to the imagination. Alcohol and drugs have been introduced into Jaffna by the armed forces. And this is something that never occurred at the time that I was in Sri Lanka. And that has a disastrous effect on the health of people and on education. There is triumphalism of triumphant archers and structures being made in the north, celebrating the crushing of the Tamils, immortalizing the armed forces as saviors of the country. This sort of thing does not work in terms of reconciliation, which is just a farce. The, another thing is that there is a breakdown of trust. And I am quoting from 
some Tamil asylum seekers uh, who have come to see me as patients. One of the asylum seekers said, you know, I had bribed the asylum seeker person arranging for people to leave the country. And every time the date approached, the Navy seemed to be aware of it. And he said, I don't know how the Navy came to hear about my impending departure. And then I, uh, I was told that it was one of my relatives who was telling the Navy of what my movements were for payment. So that there is a sense of complete insecurity. People have stopped talking to each other for fear. There is also a sense of abandonment, abandoned by the elected members of parliament, the Tamil parliamentarians. They do nothing. In fact, one of them, Mr. Sumantaran, who was here in Australia, is actually almost a part of the government. Uh, he's supposed to be looking after the people who elected him. He's doing nothing of the sort. He's looking after the government interest. The government of Sri Lanka agreed to an international investigation into war crimes. Now they say that there is no way they're going to have international judges or lawyers. They will carry out a domestic investigation into what happened. Now, a domestic investigation has already been done by the former president, Rajapaksa. His military court found that there were no war crimes, none at all, not one. Uh, they were carrying out, they adhered strictly to President Rajapaksa's zero civilian casualty directive, which is nonsense. Despite all what you've said, Brian, the people are willing to protest. Absolutely. For the first time, on the 24th of September, 10,000 people collected in Jaffna. This is the largest gathering of Tamils, civilian Tamils, since the end of the war. I didn't even think it possible. I thought they'd be gunned down or for fear they wouldn't come. Well, 10,000 risked their lives to come and give evidence and uh, was addressed by the chief minister of the northern province, a former justice, uh, Vigneswaran, a cardiologist, Dr. Lakshman, and several other prominent Tamils, and they were not afraid to speak out and say that this has got to come to an end. And uh, Vigneswaran even went to the extent of saying that uh, the only solution is uh, autonomy for the northern province, north and east. I'm not sure that he has not violated the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, and he might get locked up. In fact, there are calls in the south that Vigneswaran be arrested. This is, of course, the same thing that happened in the time of Gandhi with the British Empire. The British Empire's answer to Gandhi was to lock the guy up. And every time he got locked up, he said, I have won. And I think that these people, the 10,000 people who amassed in Jaffna and brought Jaffna to a standstill for one day, can say, we have won. And what was the military reaction to this rally? <laughs> military reaction? Well, nothing. They tried to stop it. They simply said, you know, get lost. Enormously courageous thing to do with an uh, unpredictable military swarming all over Jaffna. You know, to just say, look, we are going on with our protests. Worse still, the paramilitaries, Tamil paramilitaries, who are working with the government, also tried to stop the rally. And the parliamentarians, Tamil parliamentarians, desperately tried to stop the rally, saying it was the wrong time, wrong place, you'll derail our negotiations with the Sri Lankan government. The Tamil people said, no, you've been negotiating with the Sri Lankan government for, for months, if not years. You have not achieved anything, so we are going on with our rally.
Is there a worry that people might get picked off after? Oh, yeah. They will get picked off slowly but surely. But I'll tell you the thing that shocked me most was what happened in New York. Mr. Sirisena, the president, was in New York in September 2016 to address the United Nations. Uh, well, what he said uh, was complete lies. It was just uh, complete, total, absolute lies, as one would expect. Uh, he went on to boast uh, what a great leader he was, etc. I mean, that's what I expect of the man. What upset me was that, of all people, Barack Obama, the U.S. president, at a luncheon given for the heads of state, is reported to have said, and I quote, the positive transformation taking place in Sri Lanka at present is exemplary to the world. We assure our fullest support for the development of Sri Lanka. Were you really surprised? I wasn't surprised. I was shocked. Mr. Barack Obama, whom I held to be one of the finest presidents that the U.S. has ever produced. Really? I thought he was. Well, that has been totally destroyed. Mr. Sirisena met with uh, John Kerry, the U.S. Secretary of State, who declared, and again I quote, the U.S. government highly appreciates and admires the direction of the new government of Sri Lanka and extends every possible assistance to other countries. Well, of course they do, isn't it? The fact, Brian, that this is all part of the, the U.S. pivot to Asia to try and contain China. Absolutely. It was worse. The Colombo paper has said that even Ban Ki-moon in New York commended the, uh, the government. Now, if Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary of General, commends the Sri Lanka for what it has done, what do you think is going to happen at the UN Human Rights Council meeting in March when Sri Lanka will be under the microscope? This is, of course, uh, initiated by the US. The US is going to simply say, oh, no, sorry, forget about it. Uh, we don't want any action taken because Sri Lanka is, uh, is doing wondrous things to the Tamils. And what did Mr. Ban Ki-moon do? Uh, or is he going to do? Nothing. Well, he won't be there, Brian. The best news I heard, and the one thing that has cheered me up more than anything else this year or in the last 10 years, is that uh, the gutless Ban Ki-moon has been replaced by, of all people, the former Prime Minister of... Uh, Portugal, Antonio Guterres, he is the last person that I thought would be appointed. By far, he is the best. Guterres is uh, he born in Lisbon about 1949 or something, and he did the unlikely subjects of physics and engineering, and then went into academia, uh, which lasted a couple of years, and then he joined the Socialist Party in 1974. This was the same year, five decades of dictatorship came to an end in Portugal. Soon, Guterres became a full-time politician. He then, in 1995, became the Socialist Party's Secretary General and was voted the Prime Minister, a post he held in 2002. In 2002, he turned his attention to international diplomacy and became the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in 2005. He said that he was coming forward as, uh, or had applied, for the post of 
uh, UN Secretary General, because he, he is a staunch Catholic, of course. He said, I believe in my motivation is a certain story in the gospel called the parable of the talents. I feel that it is my obligation to use my abilities to address urgent concerns. He has worked for many years to get the rich countries to pay more for uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And apart from anything else, he's a guy who doesn't stand in the nonsense. And I think that uh, it will send shockwaves to the Sisera government when they find that at the top is not the gutless Ban Ki-moon, but a much more forceful man, Guterres. I hope the message also gets across to Prince Zaid that he now works under uh, someone who will not stand nonsense. I will certainly send a copy of my book on uh, Sri Lankan uh, sexual violence to Guterres as soon as he assumes office. And uh, I will probably get to Geneva, which I didn't intend to do, in March 2017 for the meeting of the uh, council where Sri Lanka will be under the microscope. It is certainly the best news that I have heard so far. So you're saying the council has been a tame duck for quite a while? Oh, yeah, yeah. The UN Human Rights Council is a joke. It has always been a joke, except for the time that Naunidam Pillay was at the head. But it's certainly now back to square one, and it has become a joke. But under Guterres, at the top, uh, UN Secretary General, they might well have to have a about turn. And I bet there's some gnashing of teeth going on with the socialist heading the UN. That's drunk. Dr. Brian Sinwaratna, a human rights activist of over 60 years. Common Ground Festival is back this November, featuring Frank Yammer, Dallas Frasca, Emily Waramara, The Deans, plus loads more. Complementing the music makers on stage will be free workshops from the Group Work Institute, a social change unconference, mouth-watering food and nature in abundance. It's about working together to make the world a better place and having one heck of a good time along the way. So visit commongroundfestival.org.au for your tickets. A 3CR supporter. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, the second and final part of my interview with Dr Peter Love, biographer of Frank Anstey, who was one of the leaders of the successful campaign against conscription during World War I. Last week, Peter talked about his earlier years, both in his birthplace, England, and here in Australia, in the years leading up to the beginning of World War I. And at the end of the first part, he spoke about the fact that the All-Australian Trade Union Congress had passed a resolution to fight conscription. And how were they going to fight it? By um, mobilising their forces, they were, get, they were saying, if it does go ahead, let us withdraw support for all Labor candidates. Let us have all sorts of other activism. They stopped short of a general strike, although they did contemplate calling for a general strike. I think that was largely because a number of them who were there realised that there might be difficulties in bringing off a general strike to shut everything down. But nevertheless, it was one of the proposals put forth. They did all sorts of other things like say, all right, what, what we're going to have to do, if you're going to do that, you're going to also you're going to put up the pay for soldiers, you're going to put up the pay for widows' pensions. And they were going to become extremely active 
on the ground and trash Labor MPs who supported conscription. That must have been hard for some of the trade unions, must mustn't it, yeah, to yeah, do that to their beloved party? Yeah, lots of them agonised over that. But increasingly what was happening, it's a really, really interesting thing to watch, that transition of how a small minorities, you know, you think about politicians like Frank Brennan and Frank Anstey, Dr Maloney, the, those early opponents of war, the Quakers, the feminists, the, you know, the social, some of the socialists, you know, the, right at the beginning they're opposed, but slowly, you know, as the war weariness, as the damage, and particularly after Hughes becomes Prime Minister, becomes quite the belligerent fellow using the provisions of the War Precautions Act in the most draconian way, gradually... The opposition spreads more widely. Eventually you you get more and more people persuaded that there has to be a drawing of the line on this. And for many, they were persuaded that compelling young men to go away, be killed and to kill others against their will was a line that shouldn't be crossed. And this was part of the argument. There were lots of others, you know, that really the war was about enriching the trusts and the capitalists and that the war was about the powerful and the privileged and it was the common soldier who always got slaughtered and the workers left behind, you know, would have their conditions demeaned by the exigencies of war and the importing of cheap labour while they were away to take their jobs with others. There were all those sort of arguments and gradually... It spread. And then, of course, in 1916, as you know, in Easter, there was also the other little matter in Dublin, which, of course, Catholics were largely the same as any other mob, really, maybe slightly against the war. But by and large, it wasn't until the suppression of the Easter Rebellion and the brutal way it was done, the shooting of a wounded Connolly, you know, all that stuff, you know, that just enraged a lot of Irish opinion. There was a huge and growing block of Irish resentment about the war. Their, their leader of the faith here in Melbourne you know, articulated that in very measured and reasonable terms, actually, but he did declare it was nothing but a sordid trade war. I think he came here around 1909. His first salvo when he got here was uh, government funding for Catholic schools. And how did Anstey get on with Mannix? Anstey was a secularist and very proudly and loudly so, actually. And he had very little to do with religious communities except so far as they were the, you know, deeply principled and committed ones, you know, who are anti-war or standing up for impoverished people. He was quite learned as an ex-Sunday school scholar because he won, he won prizes back in London before he left. Now, you're talking about the left and various groups gearing up against the conscription. Mm. On the other side, I'd imagine there's a similar campaign oh, yes. to make sure that the, less, the yes vote was passed. Oh, yes, yes. Well, there were outfits, you know, the, all the churches except the Catholics were loyalist to a man and woman. But, you know, leaving aside the, you know, the smaller sects, that, you know, as I said, you know, like the peace-loving ones, there were also the outfits who were deliberately put together, you know, to argue for conscription. Various others who were loyal and patriotic and you normally found in their titles something like that, you know, that you're there for king and country, etc., they're defending the empire, you know, against the Hun. They're the ones who were using those extraordinarily 
beautifully drawn and effective cartoons of Lindsay, Norman Lindsay's political cartooning on behalf of the war prosecutors, was really extremely effective. He was a brilliant cartoonist. On the other side, you had other brilliant ones on the Labour side, like Claude Marquette, but whose cartoons were all equally you know, arresting in their own sort of way. But yet you had people who were defending justice, the existing system of uh, an order of, of the world and the empire, the military necessity to augment recruitment, if necessary, by compulsion, and a whole range of them, along with loyalist women's groups. They were very, very effective and very strongly voiced as well. And they came up against, you know, the, the famous Australian you know, suffragists and pacifists. Vida Goldstein, of course, still has a, a federal seat in her name. And, of course, Adela Pankhurst, Pankhurst Walsh, as she became. Mm. He actually supported and denounced the authorities who suppressed Vida Goldstein's Australian woman paper under the War Precautions Act. He stood up for Vida in the Parliament. On the road, he often campaigned in country organising during the first decade of the century, you know, with Tom Mann and others, that often they had women organisers with them as well, was used to, around the countryside, mounting the stump, you know, side by side. Let's focus on Brunswick for a while, because mm. that was an important area oh, yeah. of this campaign. It was his base. It wasn't universally a hotbed of left support for Anstey. It was quite a divided. Because during the war, for example, the local council supported the war. They denied Anstey and his mates public spaces for rent to her campaign, so they had to have them in the open air mostly or other places. Oh, even back to the 1907 election where uh, he'd fought against Judkins the Wowser, the local mayor had supported Judkins in that campaign even though the mayor turned up to his testimonial dinner to send him off to back to England when they presented him with his, his ticket and his money. Yeah, not like any other suburb, you know, it had its, diff- its political differences. But by and large, right up even to the toughest of times, namely the defeat of the Scullin government in the 1931 election, you know, Anstey went from something like 75% of the vote down to 50.1% or 51%. Uh, but nevertheless, he could still get across the line. So it was still a heart of Labour loyalism, but not universally so, and it could swing in the most extreme sort of political circumstances. Also, the local branches of Labour were active and actively engaged. A kind of culture of getting out and about, because Anstey was such a good organiser and because he had good people around him, really important figures like Frank Hyatt, for example, who was an active young and very talented young trade unionist, played cricket for Victoria, an absolutely fine footballer, as was Curtin, they both played for Brunswick, by the way. He, unfortunately, poor old Frank, he, he died of the influenza pandemic in 1919. But Curtin, of course, you know, when he wasn't on the grog, was a, a very impressive young fellow and young organiser, and he was, again, symptomatic of the kind of talent that was there to become part of campaigns in Brunswick and surrounding areas. Yeah, in a way, the kind of political resources in terms of people and organisational capacity to do stuff was pretty highly developed around in and around Brunswick and, of course, Anstey got, in in a way, the electoral benefit of that. And what was the stuff that they did? They would hold campaign meetings, both streets and, you know, undercover 
the stuff. The campaign events were marvellous because in many ways they took the accustomed and much beloved form of musical events where you would have during speeches, uh, rousing songs, comedy gigs, the whole the whole thing you know, was a theatrical event. And, of course, Anstey's style suited this theatrical stuff very well because he had tuned himself and developed his political persona as part, as a platform man. There was the getting out and people knowing each other. As you know, in earlier periods in inner suburban communities, people knew each other. You, know, you knew who was in your street. You could ask them to do this or the other one to do that. Someone you knew, they worked at such and such a place. Or someone was at a printery and you needed something done. So at work they could print a foreigner for you. All that sort of stuff meant that you could organise your politics very well within your community using the resources of the community and the committed people who were part of it and the networks, the facilities and the things that they had. And when you've got a degree of unified leadership and some attractive people, like, as I said, when he was off the grog, Curtin was an extremely attractive young leading figure, as were many others. Nancy, of course, a well-known one, and, and many others. And so you got the point where they could mount a very, very effective campaigns against their conservative opponents, many of whom were quite capable and competent people, but they just didn't have the, the on-the-ground grunt to campaign in the way that the Labor people did. Were they targeted, nevertheless? They, some of them did go to jail? Occasionally, but by and large... Disturbing the peace, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the, there was often that it was, but it wasn't the large scale, you know, sort of gulag repression no. stuff. But yes, there, there was the kind of petty harassment of activists, which has been, which has been around, you know, forever. Basically, and it still goes on. Really, my own wife still proudly sports a t-shirt about arrested at Albert Park. <laughs> this, this is common stuff. As then, as now, you know, people still go to jail for disturbing the peace. You know, unlawful you know, staff. There were more. You know, sort of minor offences in the Summary Offences Act then that got used, some of which have fallen you know, into disuse now, but we've still got lots of others. Just ask any Aboriginal activist and they'll always bang you up with something. And of course, Pentridge Jail was the jail for men and women right. at that time. And you banged them up there. And as you know, Pankhurst got put in there and, so, and, and the choir <laughs> assembled at the walls of Pentridge to, uh, to sing her out. The first vote was 1916. Yes. What was the result of that? The, the result of that was an extremely close one. Victoria voted actually in favour in the first time round. It was basically a plebiscite, but the rules that apply to a, a, a constitutional referendum were the rules that were applied to this. You had to get a majority of votes overall, and you had to get a majority of votes in three of the six states. In other words, a majority of states as well. What happened was... They didn't get a majority in either sense. Pretty narrow margin. I'd imagine Mr Hughes was not amused. He was not at all amused, no. No, indeed, he was not. Because, of course, he then went back in to the caucus and and there was that famous meeting where, where incidentally, by the way, the only person who ever took a long and detailed account of that meeting was actually Anstey. And he sent his notes of that to the editor of the Australian Worker, uh, who subsequently published a detailed report based on Anstey's verbatim notes from the meeting. The caucus then heard reports about it, and they debated what was to be done. And they were going to move a motion, and then you beat them to it. 
said, I'll let all those who think with me, after he'd given his report, I, I invite them to come with me. And so he and 24 of them walked out of the caucus room. And that's the room on the first floor on the northwest side of Parliament House, as you look. They went off and formed Nationalist Labour. They, then as he was still Prime Minister after all, and quite a number of the members of the Cabinet went with him. He then joined with the Liberals to form a coalition, which then went to the people in 1917 in an election as the Nationalists, they won. They won a very strong majority, actually. So the people had said no to conscription, but they were quite prepared electorally to, to support a government which was resolutely prosecuting the war. In a way, we like to think there is sometimes a coherence in the popular voice. Well, I'm a bit suspicious about that. But nevertheless, if there was a message, it was clear, it is, yes, we trust you to pursue the war with vigour. We do not want people to be conscripted to go, to force to go and kill and be killed. So that was a quite interesting little conundrum. And there's a book coming out shortly, actually, of you know, revisionist views of what happened in 1916. It's actually going to be launched at Trades Hall on the day before the celebration of the, the 100th anniversary. It's a book from Monash University Press from memory, and Bill Shorten's going to do the, uh, the formal launch in the Bella Union Bar, I think it is, from memory. Anyone who hears about it may want to you know, keep their diaries up on that one and have a look and follow it on, because it's the end of October. Are there any records of the celebrations after the final vote in seventeen? I'm sure there were, but the, of the detailed descriptions of the victory events, because in, in some ways the second round was an awfully vicious fight, much more vicious than the first one. Sort of gloves off manoeuvres and Hughes was much more belligerent and used the coercive powers available to him under the War Precautions Act and other you know, executive functions available to a Prime Minister. The other side, Labour and others, were not exactly pussyfooting around either. They were well and truly and implacably opposed. So it, it was a pretty much a knock them down, drag them out thing. And remembering, you know, we, we'd also had that really rather nasty you know, 1917 railway strike, which became in part you know, spilled over to a slightly national strike in 1917, you know, coming out of the Everly Railway workshops uh, in New South Wales. That was a really, really awfully divisive sort of thing that opened up further things. We'd already had the Irish thing opened up in Easter 1916. You had a whole lot of other issues, but some of these big spectacular events, like the 1917 strike, were again indicators of how divisive it had all become and how brutal were the differences sometimes and how irreparable was the chasms of difference. What about the Russian revolutions? That was interesting because, well, Anstey was a classic of that one because as we're coming to the end of 1917, political Labor was on the back foot. They'd been absolutely trounced in a federal election, though. They, and some had alleged that in the 1916 split, the Labor Party had blown its brains out. Many of the ablest people in the Cabinet had, in fact, gone out with Hughes. Many of the politically pure remained, but they weren't all the sharpest knives in the drawer. So they were diminished to, to a degree. Then they got the, the flogging in the in 1917 federal election. And in many ways, it was the unions and the labour movement who had the upper organising hand and the, and, and the greater clout in the movement than the Labour Party, which was down, down on its uppers, so to speak. 
Anstey was one who had had many bruising encounters with the party and its officials and its and its uh, committees along the way, and he was pretty embittered and resigned to dismissing them at that point. And so when the um, news came through that there was this revolution, he was, among others, knew about the 1905 revolution. He had also known about the February revolution and the Kerensky government. But, of course, he followed very closely the cables, which weren't very fulsome, because a lot of the early stuff that was coming out didn't carry a great deal of information about what was actually happening but he could see this as the, you know, eventually first glimmer of the red dawn, you know, of the 1919-21 period, that here was an insurgent working class finally rising, that the very idea of socialism had ceased to be a political ideology, it was no longer a movement, it was now an established fact in a nation-state, and it, and it was real, that it had happened, and these were the great waves that were going to spread across the world, and he wanted to go there and he wanted to see it. So he essentially organised to um, board ship, quietly got leave from Parliament, pissed off by the US, where he spoke to some really interesting and, and some important people in the left and the Labour movement there, uh, and then made his way across to Britain and Europe, got himself subsequently nominated to a, a press delegation to the front by uh, Willie Watt, a, a bloke who went with Hughes out of the Labor Party and into the Nationalist Labor, but was personally you know, well inclined to Anstey. So he, uh, as an acting Prime Minister of while, sort of appointed Anstey to this imperial press delegation. He went to the front, went to meetings and dinners, in, which Hughes addressed, and Anstey was actually there in some of these dinners at uh, fancy gatherings in London. He went across to Ireland, actually, spoke with people there, including, he alleged, de Valera, although the photo of him with de Valera at the front of the Sherborne Hotel that I've got, some of my Irish scholar friends say that it looks like it was probably de Valera's double. Yeah, yeah, because the Poms wanted to bang him up and hang him. What Anstey was doing, he was moving around, of course, and having that, you know, in a sense, what were equivalent to you know, diplomatic credentials, a letter of appointment to an uh, imperial press delegation. That many can move about freely. He got to the edge of Sweden. He got to Malmo on his way to Russia, but couldn't get any further because of the hostilities there. And by that time, the revolution had happened and a civil war was on. He had to report on what was happening by... In a, in a sense, remote. He was on the scene. He was on the part of the world. He was following events closely. He went to the peace conference. He stayed in Paris for a while during the course of the Paris uh, peace conference. But he was largely talking with people to do with what was happening in Europe and indeed the folly of what happened and the reparation stuff that you know, Keynes so acutely analysed in the economic consequences of the peace. And eventually he, what he was doing was collecting data for reports on this seismic shift in the political landscape of the world. And he did that. And so on his way back home, to come back in 1919, he wrote up a first draft of his book that was to become Red Europe. And it was a report... 16 pages on the revolution itself, here the October Revolution. The rest of the book was largely about the events of the Civil War and their um, reverberations. became an instant bestseller, actually, both in Australia, but also the Glasgow edition did very well. 
and there was even a, um, a Pacific Northwest edition, a whole new one where they added two new pages I discovered recently, coming out of Vancouver. It was spread very widely in Europe and the Pacific Northwest, which of course is an old, long, radical tradition, as you know, in Labor terms in the US. Did he continue to support the Soviets? Yeah. Right through? Pretty much. Les Barnes, one of the old sort of old lefty Brunswick identities. When I'd got him to read the first version of my biography of Anstey, and I'd, I'd interviewed him beforehand, I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's the Anstey I knew. You know, when um, I went and asked him after the 1931 demise of political labour, he said, what should he, uh, you know, Mr Anstey, what should I do? He advised me to join the Communist Party. I did. Worst advice I've ever had. It was very interesting because it wasn't just that one little testimony. There were a lot of other things where he had been making excuses for some of the excesses that were later coming out about what had happened, what was happening in the Soviet Union. He was one of those broad-picture defenders of uh, of the Soviet Union who would admit to his horrors but would diminish diminish them. You know, the the, sort of the left apologists, really. He stayed loyal to the Labor Party? He stayed a member. What happened was, when the Scullin government was elected, he'd already had a bit of a bruising time in the 20s as a parliamentarian. He'd been, he'd been assistant leader. But he resigned that sort of stuff because, he, look, he, he wasn't good at that kind of committee. Or, he wasn't good at this kind of uh, the internal politics of the Labor Party, the factional stuff and so on, it irritated and indeed disgusted him in some cases. When Ted Theodore's uh, characters rolled one of his mates, who actually resigned his, his position in, in disgust and went to the back bench, he, just, he was never a really effective caucus operator. When the, the Scullin government... One, because of Bruce's you know, massive miscalculation in the 1929 election. They'd won the 28th election, including winning the Senate. Then he went back to the people for the House of Representatives only in 1929. And H&O lost his own seat as sitting Prime Minister. Anstey was elected as a member of the Cabinet this time, Health and Repatriation. Did a, a, a perfunctory and competent enough job, but he was, no one would ever have claimed that he was a highly successful minister. But eventually, when they came up to, to fight the big fights over what would be the economic policy of the country in the, during the crisis of government finance, he backed those who wanted to jack up on repaying the loans to Britain, the country who'd used Australian blood to defend itself and now wanted to make sure there would be no reduction in interest on war loans because Australia had to borrow money to defend England. And this was the kind of argument that was put, saying, why should we do that when the the economy has turned bottom-up across the world? We are having a bad time. Australia is in desperate straits. And more, you want to make sure that bondholders receive no reduction in their interest payments, and yet you want to slash pensions and, and so on and so on. Anyway, ANSI sided with the resistors in the Labor Party, namely the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party led by Jack Lang, which eventually took themselves out of the Labor Party and became Lang Labor. But he didn't leave and join Lang Labor. He stayed with the Federal Party and his membership. He did threaten to resign once. That was during 1915 fights over war policy in the early years. He stayed right to the end. He remained in his seat, Burke. Then... 
saw it right through to 1934, again as a member, then retired, then went to live in Bondi, still retained his membership of the Labor Party branch there, turned up for meetings regularly. I don't know whether he maintained his Labor branch connections when he returned eventually to Brunswick to live in his latter years before the, the bowel cancer got him. He never actually formally left the party in, in that sort of display of, you know, walking away from you bastards type of thing. But it was not above regularly denouncing their apostasy. Not long after he died of, as you said, bowel cancer, 1st of December 1942, the railway station in Brunswick was renamed Anstey. Who was behind that? His supporters, from what I can gather. I've never, I never got to the bottom of it as, as much as I would like. All I've heard was the likes of locals who were active and knowledgeable of community politics at the time, like Les Barnes, who I referred to earlier, and others. They said that it was largely you know, agitation from local and political supporters of AFC, that he'd had not much honour given to him officially in his life, you know, even though, of course, he was the best-selling Australian author of a radical you know, sort of account of the Russian Revolution. People had made representations to the railway commissioners to rename the station, and I've seen the letter the family got from the railway commissioners you know, seeking their agreement and permission to name the station Anstey. And, of course, Anstey's son was the one who received one of them, Darren. There were two, Darren and Ward. Darren was the one who lived in the old family home still. Uh, he received the letter. He responded on behalf of the family, saying yes. He, by the way, who was a loyal and, and loving son, and also during the height of the, the conscription and other anti-war crisis, he'd volunteered for the army. He'd been accepted, but his health wouldn't let him do anything other, other than a clerical job. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, people use that against him. So you're even your own son volunteered. Anyway, the railway commissioners you know, had, had been persuaded that it was the thing to do to name a station after what was essentially a political local hero and gave Brunswick, in a way, you know, its fame because they couldn't really claim too much of Curtin. He'd gone across to Fremantle and had represented that seat in the federal parliament. So, in a sense, you know, he was one of the local heroes who got to be named uh, as the appropriate person to have a station in the, in the electorate called Anstey, and it is to that day. And my recommendation to people is that when, if they're using that station, go by and, you know, give the, give the gate a pat and say, G'day, Frank, or whatever it takes your fancy, and so that you know something of a person who, in fact, gave his name to the station. You must feel, after all your research, that you knew him well. You get a sense, yeah, but in, in, in some ways, that question's one that you could take ages to talk about, because... What you've got is a classic case of my working very hard at very minimal direct records. That I t as I mentioned before, there was very, very little of his that remained, and I had to cobble it up from all over the place. Yes, I do think I have a bit of a sense of the man. People who knew him say that I conveyed something of that. On the other hand, you know, there are some things about him that allow you to retain, you know, to empathise to a degree with how he feels and things he believes in. But on the other hand, retain your critical distance because there's, there are other things about him and things he, he believed 
you know, that are not as you would have them. So it's not a case of any hagiography on the part of this biographical work. It's a case of being engaged with a subject. But there is that critical empathy, that distance, as well as uh, an attempt to put yourself in issues in some instances, but to be able to keep a distance in others. And that's a delicate balance for all biographers, I, I reckon. And it's a difficult one, but I try. He certainly did, and that was wonderful for Dr Peter Love to tell us the story of Frank Anstey. And just a, a reminder of the play, 1916, the No Case for Conscription. It starts two weeks today, and it runs until the 6th of November. I'll just give you the phone number now because I'm running out of time. It's the Brunswick Mechanics Institute, 9387. Three three seven six nine three eight seven three three six six to get your tickets. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. Done by law. Coming up in about oh, just under one minute's time. Bye for now. <laughs> 